Our text this morning is Romans chapter 6, verses 11 through 14. But I'm actually going to back up a bit, and I'm going to read, starting in verse 1, I'm going to read 14 verses, because there's a lot here. Our our, our message, the sermon will deal specifically with verses 11 through 14, but I want to give us a running head start here. This is Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, these are the words that he pens. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might too walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that in the body of sin, or in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died to sin has been set free from sin. Now, If we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not therefore sin reign in your mortal body. To make you obey its passions and pleasures. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will no longer have dominion over you. Since you are not under the law, but under grace. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our great God stands forever. Go ahead and take a seat. When Charles Wesley penned the words to the beloved hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, he he wrote this line. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. Wesley was teaching the fundamental truth about how the cross and our battle with sin are related. You see, the cross cancels sin for all who believe on Jesus Christ. That's justification. That's what we studied three weeks ago. But then on the basis of that cancellation of our sins, the power that bound us to sinning has also been broken. That leads to sanctification. This morning we are going to, by God's grace, seek to unwrap this beautiful gift of sanctification that has been given to every believer without exception. You may have heard these words before. We have been freed in Christ from the penalty of sin. That's justification. We have been freed in Christ from the penalty of sin, declared righteous, declared innocent, not because we are, but because we've been declared that way, freed from the penalty of sin. We have been freed from the power of sin subsequently. No longer under sin's penalty, no longer under sin's power. Sin no longer exercises dominion or mastery or control over the life of a believer. We've been freed from that. But we have not yet been freed from the presence of sin. We've been freed from its penalty, from its power, but we have not yet been freed from the presence of sin. That is exactly, precisely what the doctrine of sanctification speaks to. It's the process whereby a believer becomes increasingly conformed to the image of Christ Jesus. It begins at justification. It begins instantaneously. At justification, 
The process of sanctification, the process of becoming Christ-like, growing in practical godliness begins. But it is a process that will extend throughout the life of a believer, and it will conclude upon life's final breath or that moment when Jesus steps back in and calls us home. Sanctification comes from the Hebrew word kadash. Kadash means to cut or to dedicate or to make pure or to make innocent. Just kind of let this color in the lines for you here. Kadash, to cut, to dedicate, to make pure or innocent. In the New Testament, it's the word hagiadzo. It means to separate or to consecrate, to cleanse, to purify, to regard as holy. So if we take those two words, kadash and hagiadzo, and we synthesize them, sanctification then means that the believer is to be set apart as God's possession for God's use. It's to be other than, separate than, set apart, changed, growing, becoming Christ-like, becoming pure, being purified. There is a sense where positionally we already are pure. That takes place at our justification. But practically, we are day by day being made pure, growing in this process of sanctification. And so where you're at this morning, if you're a Christian, is you're living right smack dab in the middle of the already, but the not yet. Already it's true that you've been justified. Already it's true that you've been positionally sanctified, but you are not yet the finished product. That comes at glorification. That comes at glorification. And we long for that day. All creation groans for that day when Jesus Christ will return and make all things new, including you. Justification is being declared righteous then sanctification, you can think of it as being made righteous. Justification is objective. It's the unilateral act of God. It relates to our position before God. Sanctification, on the other hand, it's subjective. And it's that process by which we grow. And it's a process by which we are daily involved. You did not contribute anything to your justification. As a matter of fact, the only thing that we bring to the table insofar as our justification is concerned is our sin. It's the only thing that we have to contribute. Such is not the case with our sanctification. We'll talk about that this morning. It requires our effort, our striving, our work, our growing. We'll see that in numerous places in the New Testament. Justification is complete, it's total, it's immediate at the moment of conversion. Sanctification, though, is progressive. It's a process beginning at conversion and progressing through the Christian life. J.C. Ryle said, said this once, he said, tell me not of your justification. Don't, don't talk to me about your being a Christian. Don't talk to me about your justification. Don't talk to me about your going to heaven. Don't talk to me about your being right with God. Unless, unless there are also some marks of sanctification. What did he mean there? We're not saved by our sanctification. We're not going to heaven by our sanctification. We're not earning credit or merit with God because of our striving, our working, our growing. But... If those things are not true and present in the life of a believer, then we have no basis on which to believe that we've ever been justified in the first place. At justification, we're made a new creation in Christ. We're given new life. Amen. As in Christ, is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Friends, everything that's living grows. So we need to ask ourselves before we ever launch into the text this morning, am I growing? Are there marks of sanctification? Are there... Are there chisel marks in my life where God, the Holy One of Heaven, has taken his sovereign hammer and chisel and been working you and me, cutting away the old man, cutting away the old woman, that the new man and the new woman in Christ may be seen and evident. This morning, what I want to do and the points that you have on your outline there, I would encourage you to take notes if you have the ability. You'll listen better, I think, if you do. Uh, is I want to kind of walk through this process of sanctification as Paul uh, enumerates it for us or spells it out for us in Romans chapter 6, verses 11 through 14. And the way that I have put these uh, points together on your outline this morning is, is in an indicative uh, and then an imperative. Here's what that means. 
An indicative is a truth. It's a truth that is set out. An imperative is a command or something that we are to do or the way that we are to respond in light of the indicative truth. And so take number one, for instance, there. In Christ, you have died to sin. That's the indicative. That's the truth. Now, here's the imperative or the command that corresponds. Count on it. Count on it. I'll explain what that means here in just a second. You in Christ, have died to sin. That is the indicative truth. If you know Christ savingly, the imperative, what we are to do in response to that truth is to count on it. To count on it. Let your eyes find verse 11 there in your Bible. Romans chapter 6, verse 11. Paul writes this. He says, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, before I say anything about those handful of words. It is vitally important that we make a note here that is implied in the text. Implied in verse 11 is a requirement. Here's what I mean by that. Look back at verse 11. Who are the you in verse 11? Who are the you? So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Who are the you? Who is Paul speaking about there? I'll tell you who the you is. Look back at verse 2. The you in verse 11 are the we in verse 2. Paul says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And so when Paul says, so you, the you that he is speaking about is those are those who have died to sin. It's a very specific group of people that he's speaking about here. It's a very specific audience. The you are those who have died to sin. The audience in view here is those who have come to a saving faith in Christ and have died to their sin. If you have not died to sin, you are still alive to it. And the rest of this message will make very little practical sense to you. If you have not died to sin, then you are still alive to it. And everything else that I'm going to say will be of very little practical use to you. If you were to bring to me a sheep, I would say, that's a sheep. It's probably what you would say. There's a sheep. That's a sheep. Look at the sheep. There it is. If you dress that sheep up in shorts and a t-shirt, I would say, that's a sheep. Granted, it's wearing now shorts and a t-shirt. It's a sheep. If you colored that sheep with red and green polka dots, I would tell you that's a colorful sheep. Maybe a Christmas sheep. If you sheared that sheep and you taught it to stand on its hind legs and bark like a dog, I would tell you that's a sheep. That's a sheep. But if the following day that sheep were found dead in its field, I would say, that was a sheep. That was a sheep. Similarly, if a person is lost in sin, even though they might present themselves nicely, sit in church on Sundays, refrain from the more flagrant forms of sin, teach themselves to look like Christians, teach themselves to talk like Christians, teach themselves to serve like Christians, teach themselves to give like Christians, what you would hear me say about that person, if they have not died to sin, is that is a lost person. That's a lost person. Though that person may try to treat his or her neighbor as himself and follow in the footsteps of Jesus, I must say that is a lost person. As long as a person is alive to sin, they are lost. You must be born again. You must be a new creation in Christ to heed the instruction of the text that is before us this morning. And so before I say anything else, let me ask the question, are you a part of the you in verse 11. Are you in the category of the we in verse 2? Have you died to sin? Have you repented of your sin? 
metanoia, changed your mind, turned your back on your sin, turned your face on Christ, given him your load of sin, received from him his perfect, unerring righteousness. If not, then you've not become a new creation. And I would say, if not, become a new creation right this moment. Right where you sit, repent and believe. Become a new creation. Cast yourself upon the matchless mercy and grace of Christ Jesus. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, finish the sentence. You will be saved. Not a, you might be saved. You could be saved. It's possible that you could be saved. You will be saved. You'll be saved. Now, what does it mean for a believer to consider themselves dead to sin and alive to God? Let me first mention a couple things that it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we as believers are no longer responsive to the tug and the temptation of sin. We certainly are. Every single believer in here, without exception, knows with great reality that the temptation and the tug daily of sin is not gone. It is not behind us. It is not past us. Moment by moment, hour by hour, we are lured and enticed by our fallen flesh to give in to the fleeting pleasures of sin, the temporal pleasures of our fallen flesh. Temptation did not die when we became new creations in Christ. Secondly, considering yourself dead to sin also does not mean that we as believers die to the daily committal of sin. Doesn't mean that we've been freed from the tug and the pool of temptation, but neither does it mean that we've been freed from actual sin, from sinning. We sin often. We sin in our thoughts and in our intentions and in our motivations and in our actions and in our words. All tainted, marred by the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Even if we become a new creation in Christ Jesus, we still live in a sinful flesh. We've not yet been freed from sin's presence. We still miss the mark and fall short of the glory of God. And so that being the case, what does Paul then mean when he instructs us to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ? Well, the word consider here, it's the Greek word logizomai. Logizomai. You hear an English word there? Our English word logic, logizomai, the word consider there, it's used 41 times in the New Testament, 19 times in Paul's letter to the Romans alone, and it means to count, or to calculate, or to conclude, or to reason out. That's why I said, if you are in Christ, you've died to sin, count on it, count on it, Paul says. A familiar verse to many of us may be James chapter 1 verse 2. Let your mind catalog there for just a second. Anybody got it? Anybody have it memorized? Raise your hand if you have it memorized. Praise the Lord. The rest of us go home and memorize James chapter 1, verse 2. Pete, stand up really loud and share it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, brother. It's a good thing to have memorized when you raise your hand. <laughs> Appreciate you, brother. Appreciate you, brother. Yeah, James says, count it all joy. Your, your translation may say, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you meet or face trials of various kinds. James uses the same word there, logizomai. To consider or to count means to take everything that Paul has previously said. That's why I started reading this morning with verse 1. Give us kind of a running start here. It means to take everything that, that Paul has already said and enter it into a calculator and then hit the equal button and to see the conclusion. All of our tax people or all of our numbers people know that well. You sit there and you, you, you pour over the calculator or over the computer and you're entering numbers and this plus this plus this plus this plus this and, and, and at some point your, your mind checks out because it's feeble and you're trusting the calculator there and this plus this plus this and at the very end you hit equals and it gives you the conclusion. It counts for you. 
It considers the equation for you. That's what Paul is telling us to do here when he says, consider. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In very simple terms, to consider simply means to believe and to act upon what God has said in his word. Now, let's, let's just do a, a quick fly over here of the immediate context. Look, look back at the first 11 verses. Look at verse 2. Here are some of those truths or some of those indicatives. Look at verse 2. Paul says, you've died to sin. Look at verse 3. You've been baptized into Christ. Look at verse 5. You've been raised, or four rather, you've been raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. Verse 5, you're forever united or identified with Christ. Verse 6, your old self, what you used to be in Adam, has now been crucified. Verse 6 again, you're no longer enslaved to sin. Verse 7, you've been justified and set free from sin. Verse 8, not only have you died with Christ, but you also live with him. Verses 10 and 11, just as Christ died to sin, so you are also dead to sin. And so what Paul is telling us here in verse 11 is in light of all those truths, in light of everything else that I've said, consider, hit the equals button, and here's what you get. Let not sin reign in your mortal bodies. Consider yourselves dead to sin. Practically speaking, why do you suppose that considering or counting yourself dead to sin and alive to God is so important? Why, why is verse 11 so important? I'll tell you why it's so important. It's so important because you do what you do because you think what you think. You do what you do because you think what you think. If you don't think or you don't know that you're dead to sin in Christ, you won't act as though you're dead to sin in Christ. If you still think that you're guilty and condemned, guess how you will act? Guilty and condemned. You do what you do. I do what I do because we think what we think. And so Paul is telling us to consider. Use your mind. God has given us an incredible brain that bounces around between our ears. And it has the ability to consider, to ponder, and to employ truth. To put it into action. Paul's saying do that. Do that. And notice that God does not command us to become dead to sin. He tells us that we are dead to sin and alive to God. And then he commands us to act on it. To consider or to count or to reckon is a matter of faith that moves forward into action. Which is exactly what we're getting ready to consider as soon as we step into verse 12 here. It's also important to note here that Paul's exhortation to consider or to count yourself dead to sin, it's a present tense imperative. I know it doesn't mean a whole lot to everybody, and that's okay. Here's what you need to know about that. An imperative, again, is a command. In other words, it's not a suggestion. Paul's not giving us a suggestion here in verse 11 saying, if you want to, if you feel like it, when it's convenient and comfortable, then consider yourselves dead to sin. It's an imperative. It's a command. Do it, Paul says. Do it. Now, the present tense that brings even more color to the original language here. It means to keep on doing it. Do it now and keep on doing it. Go home and do it this afternoon. Do it this evening. Wake up and do it again tomorrow as you put off and put on as a daily ongoing process of becoming Christ-like. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, to enjoy the blood-purchased gift of sanctification, you must, with a capital M, must count yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Believe God's word to be true and then act on it. In Christ, you died to sin. Count on it. Number two, write this down. In Christ, sin no longer has mastery over you. That's the the indicative, that's the truth. Here's the imperative or the command in verse 12. Don't let it rain. Don't let it rain. In Christ, sin no longer has mastery. Therefore, don't let it rain. Look at verse 12 there in your Bible. 
Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Now, what questions should we ask of ourselves when we're reading our Bibles and we come across the word therefore? We should ask ourselves the questions, or the question, what is therefore, therefore? And I would submit to you that Romans chapter 6, verse 12 is perhaps the most important therefore in the Bible for believers. It can be debate, debated, not trying to be dogmatic. If it's not the most important, one of the most important therefores in the Bible for believers. What Paul is saying here in verse 12, in essence, is don't just sit in a classroom and talk about the truths that I have just spoken about in verses 1 through 11. Count on them and then live them out. In other words, let your orthodoxy, everybody has an orthodoxy, by the way, it just means what you believe to be true. Sometimes we talk about it in terms of your theology. Everyone's a theologian. It just means what you believe to be true about God. Some people have really bad theology, but we're all theologians. So let your orthodoxy, let your theology, let what you believe to be true be evident in your orthopraxy. In other words, how you live. Orthodoxy, what you believe. Orthopraxy, how you live. What you believe must impact how you live. It will. It will. Why? You do what you do because you think what you think. For a believer... Though he or she has become a new creation in Christ Jesus, though he or she has died and their life is now hidden with Christ in God, this does not mean that sin has died. You have died. It does not say, the text does not say that sin has died. Sin is very much alive. As a matter of fact, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, God told Cain, Sin is crouching at your door, personifies sin as a matter of fact. Sin is crouching at your door, its desire is for you, but you must rule. Mashal is the Hebrew word there, you must rule over it. That's reigning language. It must not be king, it must not be allowed to occupy the throne. It must not rule over you, it must not reign over you. Likewise, David understood that sin was like an evil tyrant, uh, and that it could Uh, set itself up in some position, limited position, but in in some position to to exhibit control or influence over him. And thus David prayed in Psalm 19, verse 3. He said, Lord, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Which, by the way, let me just pause here. All sin is presumptuous. Every time we sin, we are presuming upon the grace of Jesus Christ. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me, David says. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. The word reign here in verse 12. It's the word basileuo. means to possess regal authority, to be king or to reign, to rule over, to govern over, to be in force or to prevail in a general sense. It just means to have control or authority. And so you think back about your life prior to your conversion. Prior to conversion, in Adam, we stood powerless against sin. Sin sat on the throne of our lives, and it ruled with an iron fist like a tyrannical dictator. But such is no longer the case in Christ. That was the reality. That was the truth in Adam. Sin did dominate. Sin did reign. Sin did rule. Sin did sit on the throne. But now in Christ, now a new creation, sin as a dictator has been overthrown and King Jesus now sits on the throne of our lives. And so in light of that, Paul says here in our text, stop letting sin continue to exercise control in your physical body. It's no longer king. I'm king. Sin has been overthrown. Sin has been rendered or deemed powerless. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let me me get your attention here for just a second. Look at me. As a believer, we do not sin because we have to sin. We sin because we want to sin. All sin for a Christian is willful and desired. It's wanted. It's lusted after. It's craved over. 
Now, the process of sanctification means that we long for sin less because we long for holiness and righteousness more. But all sin in the life of a Christian is willful. It's voluntary. No one makes us sin. No one pushes us back into a corner. Yes, we're enticed. We still live in a fallen world. It's the world, the devil, and the flesh. They all still exist. But sin no longer sits on the throne. Sniper attacks by our flesh, they're unavoidable. But allowing sin to reign in our bodies, at least for a believer, can never be the case. If that is the case, then we need to do some examining and some question asking as to whether or not we are in Christ to begin with, whether or not we've ever been justified in the courtroom of heaven. We are dead, buried, and resurrected with Christ. Believers no longer have to obey the demands of sin. Sin has great power. Don't don't be mistaken. As long as we live in this flesh, sin will strive to reign. Sin will war to reign. It remains as an outlaw hiding away in our nature. Sin remains as a plotter planning our overthrow. Sin remains as an enemy warring against the law of your heart and your mind. It remains a tyrant worrying and oppressing you. But it no longer sits on the throne. Paul speaks about this struggle, this warring struggle in the next chapter. Look at, look at Romans 7 there for a second. Maybe you just have to turn the page. Probably a familiar text to you. Romans 7 Look at verses 18 through 25. Paul's writing about this kind of tug of war here. We, we know in the end that the battle's already won, right? In, in Christ, we know that we are headed to glory. That sin will not keep us out of heaven. But while we live here in the middle of the already and not yet, there is a warring that's going on, a tugging between the flesh and that new creation in Christ that loves God and wants to pursue righteousness. Paul writes about that here. Look at uh, seven, chapter 7, verses 18 through 25. Paul writes, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want, that is what I keep on doing. Again, anyone relate right here? Yes. Every believer can relate right here. Now, if I do not, or if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who does it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Genesis 4 7, sin is crouching at your door. It's close at hand. Paul says, For I delight in the law of God. That's that's indicative of a new believer. Do you delight in the law of God? Do you delight in the word of God in my inner being? But I see in my members. My eyes, my mind, my heart, my flesh, my hands, my feet, this body, my members, another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And then Paul just breaks out here. He says, wretched man am I. He sees his sin. Wretched man am I. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he preaches the gospel to himself. He goes right back. He goes right back to the indicatives of Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. Look at what he says here. Who will deliver me from this body of death? But thanks be to God, through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God for what? The gospel frees me from my sin, frees me from its guilt, frees me from its penalty, frees me from its condemnation. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus said, anyone believes in him who sent me, he will not come into condemnation, but is crossed over from what? Death to life. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. Number three here. Let's keep moving. In Christ, you're equipped with power. You're equipped with power. That's the indicative. That's the truth. Here's the imperative. What are we to do with that truth? Paul tells us in verse 13, use your body as an instrument for righteousness. In Christ, you're equipped with power. Therefore, use your body as an instrument for righteousness. Look at verse 13 specifically. Do not present 
your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. I said earlier that the only thing that we contribute to our justification is our sin. The only thing that we contribute to our salvation is our sin. But such is not the case when it comes to sanctification, this process of growing in Christ's likeness. God has a role. He empowers us, but we also have a role. In other words, spirit involves, or sanctification rather, involves spirit-filled effort. Salvation does not require effort. Sanctification requires effort. If we get those two things mixed up, we have believed a false gospel. It's critically important that you understand that. We are not saved by our effort. We are saved based on the merit of Christ alone. But we grow in the Christian life with God's power, by God's power, and using our own effort. Don't mix those things up. To believe that you're saved based on your own effort or your own merit is to believe a false gospel and it will lead you nowhere to hell but to hell. Sanctification, though, involves spirit-filled effort. But it's an effort that must be carried out in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And so empowered by God's Spirit, we strive. Empowered by God's Spirit, we fight sin. Empowered by God's Spirit, we study Scripture. Empowered by God's Spirit, we pray. Even we don't feel like it, by the way. Anybody ever not feel like having a quiet time or not feel like praying right now? This is not an endorsement, but Nike hit the nail on the head. Just do it. Okay? Let your feelings catch up. Don't live in light of your feelings. Get your feelings out of the driver's seat, and I need to do this daily, and into the back seat. And put truth in the driver's seat. But we are called to flee temptation. That's personal we're called to press on, to run, to pursue holiness. And God uses this. He gives us all the power we need. He gives us all the grace we need, coupled with our pursuit of godliness to grow us practically in sanctification. But we don't do it on our own. We don't do it on our own. Friends, brothers, sisters, don't, don't ever fall into thinking that, that you can grow yourself spiritually on your own. You have a role, a definitive role. We'll look at some verses here in just a second. But don't ever fall into thinking that you can do it on your own. And what Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 5, he said, I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he'll bear much fruit. But apart from me, finish the sentence. You can do nothing. He didn't say you can do some things, you can do part of it. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Do nothing. Give you a little illustration here. Came across this a few years back. I have a I have a work glove here. It's composed of materials. It's made of leather and uh, a pretty high strength other material here. It's it's made to work. It's made to pick things up. It's made to carry things. It's made to grab things, to push things, to pull things. It's made to work. But if this glove just sits on the table and we just tell it, glove, work, it does nothing. And so we can think, well, maybe the glove just needs a little bit of encouragement. And so we say, well, glove, you can do it. You were made to do it. You were made to work. You're made of leather. You're, you're made of these other materials. You're made to lift and to, to push and to pull. You got this. And we say, well, okay, maybe, maybe the glove needs a little discipleship, and so I'll, I'll come alongside and, I'll, and I'll, I'll help it. I can, can help it grab things, and I can help it hold on and, and push. Maybe the glove just needs some discipleship, some training. That's what it needs. Or maybe we think that the, the glove, he just needs, he needs some fellowship. He needs other gloves that he can hang out with. Uh, here and spend time with like-minded believers here and so you can just have a whole community of like-minded gloves the glove does nothing 
Here, here's the point, as simple as it is. We are the glove. We were made to work. We're made to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But we're powerless unless the Spirit indwells, fills, and empowers. Now the glove, empowered by Christ, can work. Don't ever think you can do it on your own. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Literal translation here of the text in verse 13 is this. Do not constantly yield or give over the members of your body as weapons of unrighteousness to sin, but once for all yield yourselves to God. Instruments. It's the Greek word hooplon. It's translated elsewhere as weapons. Interesting thought here. Interesting perspective. Don't, don't offer the members of your body. That's your eyes and your mind and your hands and your feet. That's the members of your body as instruments or weapons for unrighteousness. Instead, yield yourself, submit yourself, give yourself over to, present yourself to God, and use your members as weapons for righteousness. Hoopalon for righteousness. Instruments for righteousness. If you're anything like me, when you think about verses and you're constantly thinking about other verses. So I'm thinking about Romans 12 here. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present, same word there, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Sanctification is an active process. God has a role. He empowers. You have a role, and I have a role. And that's that we strive and we pursue and we run after. Nowhere in the Bible is sanctification described in terms of a let go and let God activity. It makes for great bumper stickers, it makes for great t-shirts, but it's a biblical farce. Let me just give you a handful of verses here. Maybe you can jot the, the reference down, you can look at them later. later. 2 Corinthians 7.1, let us cleanse ourselves. You've been empowered, now you, now me, cleanse yourself from every defilement. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, train yourself for godliness. You've been empowered, everything's been given to you, everything you need for life and godliness has been given to you. Now, in light of that, train yourself for godliness. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, we're instructed to put off the old man and to put on the new man. 1 Timothy 6.11, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, and love, and steadfastness, and gentleness. Flee sin, but pursue these things. That's, that's what sanctification looks like. Every single day when I wake up, this is what I do. I cleanse myself, I train myself, I put on the new man, I flee from these things. Paul speaks of this in 2 Timothy chapter 2 in terms of being a soldier. Soldiers work. As an athlete, athletes train as a hardworking farmer who, as a result of their hard work, have a share in the first of the crops. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. 2 Timothy 4, Paul says of himself here, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27 we're, we're described in terms of a runner who runs and an athlete who exercises and a boxer who, who competes and disciplines his body. God gives us everything we need to obey and then calls us to obey. In the grand scheme of things, he's obeyed for you in Christ, who if you know him is your substitutionary sacrifice. He's already obeyed for you perfectly, but in the practical every day of the Christian life where rubber meets the road, he's given you everything. He's equipped you with everything, his word, his grace, his mercy, the gospel, like-minded believers, everything you need you have. Now go obey. That's sanctification. And as you do that day after day after day after day, 
you begin to bear more and more resemblance to the Lord Jesus Christ. In a, in a positional sense, we're already ready for the wedding day in heaven. But in a practical sense, day after day after day after day, as we grow and change and become more Christ-like, we are being readied for the wedding day. I love that. I love that. And for some of us, that means radical amputation when it comes to our sin. Anything that stands between us and Jesus must be radically amputated. I've mentioned this before, but when gangrene starts to infect an area of a person's body, physicians don't treat it with Neosporin and a Band-Aid. Why? Because Neosporin and a Band-Aid is insufficient treatment for gangrene. Gangrene is treated by cutting the infection away, and we must deal with sin when it's found in our lives in the exact same way. If drastic measures are appropriate to treat the physical man, then certainly drastic measures are appropriate to protect and to treat the spiritual man or woman. But we've got to deal radically with our sin. We can't pamper it. We don't flirt with it. We don't nibble around the edges of it. We hate it. We crush it. We cut it out. Sin entangles and it ensnares. Rid yourself from it. Billy Sunday once said, the reason so many Christians fall into sin is because they treat sin like strawberries and cream rather than a rattlesnake. It's true. It's true for me. I mean, I can think of this last week, just the last 168 hours, how many times I've treated sin like strawberries and cream instead of like a rattlesnake. Let me give you number four. We're going to land the plane here. In Christ, grace teaches us to say no. Therefore, in light of that truth, plan your obedience in advance. In Christ, grace teaches us to say no. So plan your obedience in advance. Look at verse 14. Paul writes, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Thomas Watson, I encourage you often to read the Puritans. As a matter of fact, we just ordered an, an entire set of the Puritan paperbacks. It's going to take a little bit of time to get them nicely ready for the library. If they'll be in the library, and use those things. They are a treasure trove of uh, devotional richness for the believer. Thomas Watson once said this. He said, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. As a new creature in Christ, we must learn how to say no to sin, to say no to the flesh, to say no to its temporal pleasures, to say no to gratifying. The fact that we're saved by grace, which is what Paul tells us here in verse 14, we're not under the law anymore, which the law just excites our sin, the law just reveals our sin, the law just tells me I'm a sinner, the law just points out the fact that I've missed the mark. I'm no longer under the law, but I'm under grace. I'm under the grace of Christ. That fact, we are saved by grace, does not give us an excuse to sin. Rather, it gives you a reason to obey. The fact that we are under grace does not give us an excuse to sin. Oh, God will just wink at my sin. He doesn't, I'm in Christ and forgiveness and it's good and the gospel and we all sin, don't we? And so we can just get around in a little holy huddle and lick each other's wounds. And No. Radical amputation. Grace does not give us an excuse to sin. It gives us a reason to obey. Paul wrote to Timothy, for the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God in this text is a man. His name is Jesus Christ. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness or to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright lives in this present age as we wait for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior who purchased us by his own blood for his own possession so that we might be zealous for good works. You want to know the source of your sin? Let me... Let me, let me take you down just real quick and I'll leave you on a high note. You want to know the source of your sin? My sin, I'm speaking to me here. We can stop blaming our parents. 
We can stop blaming our children. We can stop blaming our husbands and our wives or our jobs or the devil or the demons or the economy or the Democrats or the Republicans or terrorists or analysts or anyone else for that matter. Do you want to know who's responsible for your sin? It's the person staring back at you in the mirror this morning. It's the person staring back at me. The grace of God has appeared. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. But friends, that doesn't happen by default. Plan your obedience in advance. The reason that we fall so often, the reason that we give in, the reason that we miss the mark, the reason that we fail when it comes to God's glory is because we've not planned our obedience in advance. We've not prepared for the temptation. In Christ, grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Lastly here, Remember that spiritual growth is a process, and I want to encourage you here. Spiritual growth, like physical growth, is a process. It takes place over time. Matter of fact, it's primarily described in the Bible as a walk. New habits take time to form. Old habits take time to break. We're literally growing from new birth to maturity in Christ. We have to learn how to dress. Every parent in here, I I remember as as a younger parent, just couldn't wait for the day that my own children could put their own socks and undies on and pour a bowl of Cheerios. They have to learn how to do those things. They have to learn how to dress. So do we. Put off the old man. Put on the new man, Paul tells us, Ephesians chapter 4. You know, oftentimes we don't feel like we've grown. I can remember growing up as a young man. I'd go to the doctor uh, looking at a pediatrician over there who can probably relate here. But I remember as a young man, I'd go to the doctor and you stand on the scale. I didn't mind that then. I mind it now. Uh, but you stand on the scale and you back up to that thing and, you know, it measures how tall you are, right? Well, I can remember growing up as a young man not feeling, when I went to the doctor, any taller. Not feeling as if I had grown. Not feeling as if I measured up. And for sure, in the life of a Christian, this can be discouraging if you don't feel like you're growing. But rest assured, if you know Christ, God is at work and he isn't quitting on the job. He brings to perfect completion everything that he undertakes to do, even you. That is the glorious gift of sanctification. Paul said we can be confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. One day he'll present you blameless without spot or wrinkle or any such defect. 